Hello everyone and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Friday, February 9th, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about Zelda Williams' first movie, Lisa Frankenstein. My name is Ben Pearson. I am an editor at SlashFilm.com and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor BJ Colangelo. Hi, hi, hiya. All right, BJ, this is the first movie from Zelda Williams. What do you think people should know about her as a creative person, as a director, as a, a person in Hollywood now? Sure. So I do want to do a small addendum. It's her first feature movie. She has done short films before. Um, She has a great short film called Shrimp, uh, which is actually one of the films that kind of put her on Diablo Cody's radar. Um, It's about sex work in Los Angeles. So, you know, keep that in mind when you're you're looking it up. It's a little NSFW. Uh, But I really like Zelda Williams a lot as a creative. Um, Obviously, she is the daughter of Robin Williams. So that she grew up on sets, she grew up, you know, on movie sets. And I think that, you know, Nepo babies can sometimes get a bad rap because a lot of times they like to pretend like that they've not gotten any advantages. Uh, Zelda Williams is not that kind of Nepo baby, which I greatly appreciate. But something that she talks about a lot is, you know, there is a benefit to growing up on these sets. I know how movies get made because it's the only world I've ever known. And I think you see that reflected in a lot of the stuff that she works on. But also she is a deeply hilarious person with a very fascinating sense of humor, which I think also tracks being the daughter of one of you know the greatest comedic actors to ever live Mm -hmm. um but she's also a huge dork i mean she's named after zelda as in the legend of zelda she's done voices on you know animated shows like the legend of korra and teenage mutant ninja turtles um so she's very well versed in genre as well um so i think she's kind of a perfect match for somebody like diablo cody Okay, excellent. So speaking of Diablo Cody, we, we just spent a whole episode yesterday talking about Diablo Cody. And uh, just to get into our general thoughts about this movie, Lisa Frankenstein, BJ, I have to tell you, like, ironically, every problem that I had with this movie stemmed from the script for me. I think my biggest issue with this movie is that it's supposed to be a comedy. And I just personally didn't really think it was that funny, which is like a really tough thing to come back from. Because oh, none... damn, skill issue. I think this movie's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, this is exactly why, I mean, it's sometimes tough to talk about comedies because it's it's such a personal thing. Oh yeah, it's but, so subjective. But like for me, almost none of these jokes landed for me. And when I realized that going through, um, you know, about halfway through the movie, I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm I'm just not quite on this movie's wavelength in terms of the humor. So I, I like shifted my perspective and started paying attention to different things, different aspects of the, the making of the movie. And uh, I came away with this incredibly impressed with what Zelda Williams was able to do here, especially being her first feature. I just thought she was kind of like walking this, this um, high wire of like, you know, this is a really uh, odd movie. This is an unconventional sort of mainstream mm-hmm. Hollywood movie. But I thought that she was able to, with a couple exceptions, uh, sort of blend all the different vibes and tones that she was going for fairly well. And I, I think it's a, it's a successful movie um, on like a technical level, it's a successful movie on uh, a bunch of different levels. I actually like most of the performances in this movie, even though I, I didn't really gel with the comedy behind it. So, you know, it, it's a tough one for me to talk about because I didn't really like the movie that much because I didn't really think it was funny. But there's still a lot of it that I'm I'm kind of like, OK, I, I guess I just really can't wait to see what Zelda Williams does next uh, and whether or not that's another 
uh, collaboration with Diablo Cody. That could be cool. Like, you know, most of Diablo Cody's movies, I think I've connected with the humor more than I did in Lisa Frankenstein. So like, I wouldn't be opposed to the two of them teaming up for just like something different. And like, that's another at bat in terms of like uh, me being able to connect with the comedy that they're, they might be going for, or just her teaming up, you know, just like moving on and, and uh, directing something else, you know, with a, a different screenwriter or writing something herself or whatever. So um, anyway, I just wanted to sort of set things up because I know you like this movie a lot more than I did. So I just wanted to like mm-hmm. uh, lay the groundwork for why it didn't really <laughs> connect with me uh, all the way through. But um, you tell me what you, th- what you thought about this one. Oh, so I was, very uh, in love with this movie it hits all of the intersections of things that i like it's a horror movie it's a comedy movie it is a teen movie it is a teen sex comedy it deals with a weird girl protagonist um like these are all things that just really check all the boxes for me so it was going to be difficult for me to not like this movie and i can say that fully admitting like i'm biased because it's stuff that i like Mm -hmm. (laughs) um You know, it's like telling somebody who grew up watching the Ghostbusters, like, of course, they're going to like the new Ghostbusters because they just like the Ghostbusters. It's fine. Um, (laughs) And but this movie really speaks to a lot of my sensibilities because it does something that I have been missing for so, so long, which is one, it is a movie that requires actual suspension of disbelief and has absolutely no interest in living in any semblance of reality. Um, When we talk about like missing films like Tim Burton's, you know, Beetlejuice or what have you, those are movies that could never get greenlit today because they require the audience to just go with it. And studios are terrified of that right now. So to see a movie where it's like, yeah, lightning's going to strike a grave and resurrect a zombie and he's going to magically know how to get to her house. Why? Don't ask. Who cares? Why? Yeah. Why? focusing on this which i really appreciate but also that it's a weird girl protagonist who's actually weird because the the big issue that i've had is that, you know they've discovered in hollywood that goth girls are definitely a thing people are interested in they're not just you know outcasts to make fun of people are very interested in hot goth girls um and so they have kind of done what I, I refer to it in my review as like the goth girl by way of Pornhub search results of vacation of the weird girl character. Mm. Meanwhile, Lisa Swallow's actually weird, like genuinely a weird person with weird social skills and weird interests. And to see her get to be at, you know, the the center of this movie was just a delight. <laughs> Okay, so one of the things that we were talking about um, before, I think this was like right before I saw the movie, um, you were telling me your theory about this movie's relationship to like the uh, logic of 1980s comedies. So tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So this movie is set in the 80s and it follows, you know, a lot of like the 80s aesthetic, but it does not operate under the same rules of what I will say is like the stranger thingsification of the 80s, where you strip away the aesthetic and this could take place at any time. It really doesn't matter. Whereas Lisa Frankenstein has to be an 80s movie because it operates under 80s comedy movie logic. This movies comedy has far more in common with say the burbs or weird science or better off dead um any of these just 
kind of like human cartoon movies as I would describe them as than it does with any other like 80s horror comedy that you could probably think of like an Evil Dead or something like it's way more in line with the weirdo comedies Mm -hmm. and you know the the weird science comparison which is the one that I, I you know told you yesterday is one a lot of people are making because they're both like build a mate movies in weird science they use the computer to build you know the the hot woman and elisa frankenstein it's a undead corpse and she's securing body parts but they're both building a mate movies but people forget that in weird science there are also scenes where they turn bill paxton into like a chud like he turns into a giant pile of gross there are mutant bikers that show up and crash a party like things that are not rooted in reality at all and lisa frankenstein has a lot of those comedic elements to it that i really like and think are really funny and it's like i think people have forgotten how like bananas logic a lot of 80s comedies actually function because of like the stranger things vacation of the 80s where either you're so far away from actually living in that time period where you've become an adult that you have forgotten how much suspension of disbelief is required for those movies or you didn't grow up in that time period so your only knowledge is like filtered through other interpretations yeah i think that's a good point and there's definitely some super weird stuff going on in the 80s like those 80s movies that you mentioned and uh and yeah that that uh, i think this movie um well, actually, let's take a break and then we'll get into uh, one of the specific issues that I have here, which involves the sort of uh, the 80s comedy kind of tones that that uh, you just mentioned. OK, so for me, BJ, one of the, the tonal clashes that didn't really work here is like Lisa has this horrible backstory, right, of her mother being the victim of an axe murderer and um, Lisa witnessing the whole thing. And the movie kind of wants to play that for laughs. There's a line where uh, Lisa's, is it her stepsister, I think, Taffy? Yes, her stepsister, uh, Taffy. Says, you don't have to worry about anything because your mom's already been murdered. And Lisa just kind of like shrugs and accepts that. And like, you mentioned before that this movie takes place in a heightened reality. Like that exchange is not how people would really talk to each other in the real world or react to those comments if that happened to somebody in real life, right? So the the movie kind of wants to use that uh, backstory as the basis for jokes. But then late in the movie, there's a scene where Lisa and the the creature, the monster, whatever, are sitting on her bed and she has this very earnest conversation about grief and how she's feeling in the aftermath of her mom's murder and how time is the enemy and all of this stuff. And I was kind of like, wait, so you do want to take this subject seriously? And so the the clash of those two things, I think really stood out to me as being like, I'm not really sure where I'm supposed to, like how, how I'm supposed to be directing my uh, emotions and, and engagement in this movie. So um, I don't know. Did you have any response to that or, or, you know, a reason why that stuff worked better for you than it did for me? Or did you have share that same issue? Or what do you think? Sure. So when it comes to this tragic backstory, um, I thought it was genuinely really funny that the backstory of like, how does she end up in, you know, this new, this new stepmother thing is that her mom gets murdered. Like it is a heightened version of kind of like a, every Disney princess story that you've ever heard, which is one of those parents is going to die in like a horrible situation, either a witch's curse or a hunter or war or what have you. Someone's dying and now you are going to move in with your wicked stepmother. Um, so I thought that that was a very 
kind of funny approach to it. The fact that Taffy has the line of, you know, you don't understand your mother's already murdered. Um, to me, it was a one. It's just a really funny line because that's not how people talk and is just ridiculous. But the response that Lisa has of just kind of accepting it was twofold of one. Um, mental health and empathy were not always at the forefront of a lot of 80s comedies um <laughs> when you think about the like some of the situations that exist in a lot of movies between like oh so and so was in a car crash or oh so and so did you know this bad thing happened to them i mean beetlejuice is exclusively about death and it is constantly people poking fun at death and dying um and heathers is a, is a similar way where it is very common for them to just make jokes about people dying um but then you do find out that it is kind of an act acting like you're okay with it and that it's not a big deal and that it doesn't bother you is sort of a survival mechanism because she's already weird she's already got these things if she you know lets it know like makes it known to other people that like she's deeply still very traumatized by this and it's still a problem then she becomes an even bigger problem hmm. because lisa has all these comments throughout the movie that like oh i don't talk a lot i never like really talk to people but she talks nonstop with the creature because she feels like she can confide in him she's able to be honest and open with him so for me seeing the exchange with taffy is her one covering up and also the fact that she's trying to get taffy out of her room because you know she definitely killed taffy's mom um <laughs> so she's like she's like yeah you're right like this is not the time for her to pick that fight because she's got to get her out of her room that is her main focus um and then she's actually open and vulnerable with the creature because you know who who are you going to be the most open and vulnerable with if not the first love of your life <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, that's, a, I guess, a more generous read than I had for it. Um, so we've talked about Taffy a couple times. Uh, I, f I feel like, so first of all, let me back up. Catherine Newton is great. Like, she's been very good in a lot of things. And I thought she uh, held this movie really well. Like, she has the star power. She has the sort of it factor thing um, where she's just, like, really, really easy to watch, easy to relate to, um, easy to, to sort of, like, you know, I, I just thought she was, like, a great movie protagonist, even though I didn't necessarily laugh at any of the lines that she said in the movie so it was easy for me to like buy her as the star of this film like no questions asked i think i would just love to see her in more stuff she's she's great um i assume you feel similarly about her Oh, yeah. I love Catherine Newton. I've been on board with her for quite some time. Uh, Freaky was obviously a, a very big one for me with her. Um, but she's also gotten like these little smaller movies that people haven't seen, like The Map of Tiny Perfect Things, which is a time loop rom-com uh, that I also recommend because it's very sweet. And she's it's been really nice to see this wide range of characters she can play. I mean, she's in the MCU now, too. Like, yeah, for her. <laughs> okay, so uh, the, I think the real standout for me in this movie, though, is um, I think her name is Liza Soberano, who plays Taffy. Oh, I love her. Oh, my Man, God, do I love she her. She was so great. I, I just like, I don't think I'd ever seen her in anything before. And um, she, I mean, talking about walking like a high wire, I feel like that character more than any other um, it, it kind of feels like to me, like this movie is in conversation with Jennifer's body, you know, in a way. And like, I think the Taffy character is sort of the lens through which that conversation is happening. Um, it, it almost feels like Diablo Cody introducing some complexity into the conversation. And I kind of read this as her version of saying like, 
not all cheerleaders almost like did, did you have a similar yeah. read on it like you know the, the jennifer character is this sort of popular girl in school she's this cheerleader and we talked on yesterday's episode about the how the relationship between jennifer and uh needy who is um played by um amanda seyfried in that movie is is this unhealthy relationship and in a way it kind of seems like there's part of this relationship between Lisa and Taffy that is going to be a similar type of vibe, but then it ends up going in a different direction near the end. And, and they have that, um, that sort of like, uh, well, th- there's a terrible moment where the, the creature ends up like uh, chopping off the junk of the guy that, that uh, Taffy is sleeping with. Um, but then the sisters share this moment in the car that I thought was just like a really nice uh, genuine moment that kind of like, let the Taffy character off the hook in a way that Jennifer was never really let off the hook in Jennifer's body. So what did you make of that um, dynamic and that part of the relationship? So Liza Sobrano is a superstar. She is incredible. Um, people are likely not familiar with her unless you are uh, from the Philippines. She is a massive star in the Philippines, which I think is really cool um, that she, this is like her first Hollywood project that she picked. And I love that of all the things she could have chosen, this is what she chose. Um, But yeah, I agree that it's in conversation because there is this archetype of kind of the, the popular cheerleader girl that's really pretty that everybody likes. She tends to also be presented as somebody who rules because people fear her because she's mean. And we don't get that with Taffy. Like she is sincerely a good person and is actively trying to make things better with Lisa of like, you went through a bad thing and your dad married my mom and my mom's not very nice to you and people don't understand you, but I'm going to meet you where you are and be there for you. And she's always nice to her. And I like seeing that sort of character because a lot of times that's just not what we get. Stepsisters Mm -hmm. and stepmother are always evil and wicked and taffy's even like my mom's a little hard on you like let me let me help you let me try to teach you how to do your hair a little better if you want to use my tanning bed that i got from winning a pageant yes you can use my tanning bed she's like a very sincere character and i think it like is such a great spotlight for for her as an actress because that is a very hard line to walk because this character is so archetypal otherwise. And the fact that she makes her so complex and layered is just a testament to how talented she is. I wish we got a little bit more of like the, um, you know, basically uh, Lisa bursts into the room and realizes that, that uh, Taffy is in bed with the guy that Lisa likes. And, um, you know, she's furious about that. And, uh, and, and I, you know, that complicates their relationship, but kind of like only for five minutes. And like, I, I kind of wish that there was a little bit more to that um, schism. Like, not that I wanted them to never speak again or whatever, but I just, I wish the movie had time to explore maybe the, the, um, I don't know, the, the full uh, ripple effects of, of exactly what that kind of action could cause between these two sisters, these two characters. Um, because I feel like it kind of like brushes over it. And I was like, man, that is like maybe the most, one of the most interesting things to happen in this movie, just because of exactly what you're talking about. Like that character is not the typical version of the cheerleader that we've seen before. She is super nice to Lisa all throughout, except for in this one key moment that is obviously like a huge deal in Lisa's mind. So, um, I, I don't know. I just, I wish we got like a little bit more, um, there, you know, more, more time to explore that dynamic and the the fallout from it. Yeah. I would have um, liked to see a little bit more of that as well. But the one thing that I will, you know, to the film's credit is that one, 
we are also seeing Taffy is like messed up. Like her mom is missing, most likely dead. We know she's dead, but she doesn't know that yet. Um, she's she's going through it. She's having a hard time. She's leaving school. Um, when teenage girls are emotionally compromised, we make dumb decisions. We make excruciatingly dumb decisions. Um, <laughs> I am a very, very big example of said bad decision making. Um, <laughs> and, but it does give this like really wonderful moment where, you know, Lisa calls out the the guy, name's Michael, um, who is kind of like the art boy at school that she has a thing for, but he doesn't like Lisa. And she has this great monologue that I'm so glad we finally have a monologue about, which is the weird, weird girls acknowledging that the weird boys don't even want the weird girls because the weird boys still filter into like the way that, you know, society conditions us, which is to want to bone the cheerleader. And that's, you know, she she really lets him have it. And it's like, oh, I like that your anger is directed in the right place. Um, that's nice. But, you know, then, yeah, his junk gets chopped off and she's like, well, that's handled. So I guess I got to <laughs> deal with my sister. Um, and yeah, she that's has- a really great speech. That moment where she's like, oh, you don't God. want your girlfriend to like cool things. I was just like, man, that like I, I feel like um you know, that, that sentiment is so universal. Like that applied when I was in high school to, to people that I knew. And that I'm sure that applies now still. Like, I feel like people can, oh, yeah. you know, seeing that is got, has got to be so, um, Oh, it's uh, so validating. Like, yeah. Validating. That's the word. Yes. Because it is like, I mean, even in Diablo Cody's work, Colin Gray, God bless you. Uh, Kyle Gallner, you're so incredible as everybody's favorite emo boyfriend in Jennifer's body. Colin Gray still asks out Megan Fox, who yeah. thinks that Rocky horror is a boxing movie and it's like (laughs) like it's such great commentary that you know they're saying the thing that so many weird girls have been screaming for years and it was yeah it was great and the fact that it's the button on it is is the dick chop which i cannot believe they got away with that in a pg-13 movie there's from what i've learned I think Lisa Frankenstein was originally supposed to be rated R and then it got scaled back to PG-13. I really want to know what a rated R version of this movie would have been because the the shadow play of the dick chop is just <laughs> chef's kiss. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So I don't know. Like, we have to talk about Carla Gugino for just a second just because- Oh, bless she, her. <laughs> I mean, she is just absolutely going for it. And sometimes it kind of feels like she's going for it so hard that she feels like she's in another movie. But other times it kind of feels like she's doing that thing that happens in a lot of Tim Burton movies where like, yes, she's a, a heightened character in a heightened world and- and she kind of fits in well. So I I don't really know what to say to her other than, or what to say about her other than just to kind of like, I, I guess praise what she's doing because you know she, her line deliveries for, for some of the, uh, first of all, she's playing a Scientologist, which is kind of hilarious because the movie's like clearly making fun of that. But like at one point where she's, she's talking to Lisa and she's like, you're either crazy or you're just goddamn inconsiderate. And I'm like, man, this is just like, th- this is, uh, I, I'm not like laughing out loud at it, but I, I, um, am reacting to, I'm, I'm, I'm emotionally responding to the delivery here. And the fact that Carla Gugino is just like making a capital C choice here, uh, as a performer. So well, I was um, cracking up for every, anytime she said anything, the way she smiles, the way she looks in the camera, because it feels like she, you know, people that I talked uh, about this movie with were like, what was going on with her character? She was like so big. And I was like, okay, I need you to think about a couple things here. I need you to think about Shelley Long and Troop Beverly 
Beverly Hills, which is a movie that uh, Carla Gugino was in as a child. I was like, I need you to think about um, Catherine O'Hara in Beetlejuice. Um, and then I need to th- you to think about any character in the movie Clue. And then I need you to think about Diane Weist in Edward Scissorhands. And now please tell me, is she making the incorrect choices here? And yeah. everyone went, no, she's right. That's exactly what she's doing. Yeah, it definitely seemed like the vibe they were going for. Um, okay, so uh, like any other sort of highs, lows, notable scenes, anything that you wanted to mention about this movie? I really got to shout out Cole Sprouse um, because Cole Sprouse has been spending the last you know decade of his life. You know he was he was a child star. He and his brother Dylan had their you know Disney Channel show. His character was always kind of like the the quick witted, like the mouthy one. Um, and then on Riverdale, you know he's Jughead Jones. He's weird. He's a weirdo. Um, that's kind of who he is. And to see him do such great physical comedy in this movie and take like a very Charlie Chaplin approach to playing this undead creature, I was like, you know, that's that's hard. That's hard to play a character that does not speak. And yet I always knew what the character was feeling, what he was trying to convey to Lisa. Um, I also love the gimmick that every time they use the tanning bed to, you know, electrocute a new body part to make it, you know, function with him, that he gets progressively more attractive because mm-hmm. he's getting tanner. I was like, that's hilarious. Because by the end of it, it's like, oh, this is just like hunky goth Cole Sprouse. Like, okay. Um, I was really, really impressed with a lot of his work, uh, the Hitachi magic wand scene just destroyed me. I laughed so, <laughs> so hard. Um, I, yeah, I think he did really, really great work and I like the two of them together and I want to see them do another movie together, preferably where he can talk this time. Cause I do think he's a good actor. Um, but I, yeah, he really pulled that off and that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. Um, There's a moment where Catherine Newton was wielding a golf club as a protective weapon at one point, I think, right, like right when she first meets him. And I was like, oh, that's clever. Catherine Newton, I think, is like a, a very She's good like a golfer. She's like a semi-pro golfer, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that was a, a fun little moment in case you like know anything about her life off screen or whatever. Um, There's the also a very pe- sweet moment at the end with, uh, with Cole Sprouse um, holding Lisa and he's wearing rainbow suspenders in honor of Robin Williams. Which oh I yeah. Was, I missed that. It's a very, very sweet. Like you don't, it doesn't call any attention to it, but once you see it, you're like, Oh, that's, Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. That is nice. Uh, another nice moment is the piano scene where, um, uh, Catherine Newton sings. I can't fight this feeling by Ario Speedwagon. What'd you think about that? I love that scene because that to me feels like a very, you know, nonsensical 80s scene where we learn that his his character in, in the past life was a piano player. And so he's sight reading Ario Speedwagon, which is really funny to me because the joke is like, my dad doesn't play anymore, you know, since my mom dies. And like the last piece of sheet music is Ario Speedwagon. <laughs> um, great, great joke there. Um, and I like that Catherine Newton, like she really commits, but it is like karaoke committing it is not a girl who is actually like very very talented at singing she's just feeling it and we also don't get those moments a lot like 80s movies always had like the one dancing like i think about the opening of like adventures in babysitting where it's like she's getting ready and she's dancing around the room we don't show that in movies anymore because i think people are like it's cringe don't do that uh so it was really nice to see like him playing piano and her just singing and having this like really lovely moment it was it's very sweet they do nail the romance in this movie for it being you know a zomcom like a rom-com zomcom uh 
I thought it was sweet. Yeah, I I um I think the uh it reminded me a little bit of the moment from uh, No Hard Feelings that happened last year oh, where yeah. that character sits at the at the piano and kind of like woos Jennifer Lawrence's character a little bit. Um I, I did want to call it two particular lines of dialogue that I that I liked so that I thought were uh sort of um you know in the in the uh uh, maybe not the pantheon of Diablo Cody things, but the ones that that jumped out to me is like, oh, this is a, a nice line. Uh, when you cry, it smells like a hot toilet at a carnival. That's just like, <laughs> that's good stuff right there. And then also at one point, um, I forget who says this, but somebody like enters a room and just goes, shit is transpiring, man. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that, that feels like something that I could actually adopt into my, you know, uh, everyday lexicon or whatever. So uh, just a, I, a quick I shout out to I got a big laugh at um, someone walks into a room and says, it's smells like ham in here which is such a throwback to jennifer's body of uh, her saying like my mom's going on the date with the guy who owns the ham store <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i forgot about that um yeah. there was a very weird moment at the very end of this movie where they visit lisa's grave and the um taffy character is there with her dad and she looks down at the grave and like seems to be uh, affected by seeing something and he's like what what what's wrong and she's like oh nothing and then the camera kind of you know they they leave to go to Fuddruckers. um and then the camera sort of like swoops around and reveals that the phrase beloved wife has been uh carved into the tombstone and i'm like are are we meant to think that the dad didn't see that at the very end like i i was just kind of confused by what exactly i was supposed to take away from that did you have like a, a read on that at all or was it just like a moment that i'm not really supposed to think about um so i do think it is like kind of a don't think about it moment but also i fully believe that the dad didn't see this because we see him the entire movie being completely unaware of everything um this actor plays this kind of dad in in a lot of things uh he plays this dad in stranger things he plays this dad in uh the movie assassination nation which is not an 80s movie but he is so good at playing just like the head down reading the newspaper that's nice honey dad um so in my head i'm kind of like yeah i don't think he saw that i think he yeah. just was like well we did it we're here let's go see your mom now bye <laughs> <laughs> um, the only other, I guess, notable scene that I wanted to bring up real quick is the, um, I guess, the, the one-two punch of uh, of uh, Lisa's character being assaulted by her lab partner and then getting revenge on him later on in the movie. Um, that was very Jennifer's body to me. Like, I, I probably just because I just watched Jennifer's body yesterday morning, but like the um, that uh, seemed like an echo to me. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that particular um, subplot in this film? Oh yeah. Screw that guy. Screw that lab partner. Um, <laughs> like I love the defense too. If she's like, well, that hand was going to do some pretty bad things um, yeah. to kind of like justify why they got to take that guy's hand, uh, hand off. Um, but in a very weird way, um, I was like very, weirdly refreshed that like doesn't seem like the word that I should be using here but it was weirdly refreshing that when he tries to like feel up Lisa at a party while she is clearly like under the influence of drugs um that it is very matter of fact that it does not feel very after school specially because that's not how it is in real life when it happens in real life it is very much like what the hell are you doing guy get away from me like yeah. it's it and the fact that it treated it that way I don't know, weirdly refreshing, you know, again, not the right turn of phrase here, but there's no other way to really explain it. Um, I don't know. It was just really nice to see a film that was like, 
no, we're treating this as like a matter of fact thing that's going to happen and it's going to suck, but it's not going to define the rest of the movie. And yeah, he's going to get his comeuppance and he's going to deserve it. And you're all going to be on board with it. Yeah. Also the fact that he's not like a jock character doing it, which is something that you see happen a lot in movies like this. He's, he's the sort of dweeb of the movie. He's the, you know, her lab partner who does not seem to be a, um, you know, a sexual threat in any way doing this thing. And that's kind of like horrifyingly realistic, I think probably for a lot of people's experience. It's not always just, you know, the, the people that you might um, expect to do something like this. There, there's like, uh, I, I thought that was like a, yeah, again, it's weird to say like nice touch, you know, for a scene yeah. like this, that's <laughs> obviously doing something horrible, but um but I thought that was, yeah, maybe a, a realistic touch anyway. So. Yeah, and it was like, I think it's also a nice subversion of kind of those 80s tropes where geeks were always portrayed as like the underdog. And yet when you rewatch movies like 16 Candles or Revenge of the Nerds, you're like, these guys are rapists. <laughs> like, yeah. what the hell? Yeah. Um, which, you know, that also is a callback to my one of my favorite lines in Jennifer's body, which is what car was it? I don't know, Chip, an 89 rapist? Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> clever. Diablo Cody, you're a genius. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh any other moments that you wanted to call out here before we wrap things up um the only other moment that i really do want to call out is i found uh the the build-up to them having sex to be like weirdly really cute and very sweet and very you know it was very exciting for them of you know there's like this big sweeping romantic shot in the graveyard that looks like the abominable dr phoebe's um poster which i thought was really sweet and then you know you go back to the house and she's she's got to sew sew the dick on him um so that it can be functional and mm -hmm. it's this very like like this is what enthusiastic consent looks like <laughs> as weird as it is but that's what i was seeing i was like that's that's so sweet i like this i wasn't sure what the movie if anything was trying to say like uh with the idea that you know this character this creature has the hand of this um you know this lab partner that we were just talking about and then also the dick of this guy that she was into but like was not really into her like i, I guess i i i suspect that somebody somewhere will write you know a full-on academic paper about the symbolism of you know these these body parts being attached to this guy and and what that might mean for lisa's uh entire sexual experience or whatever oh yeah it's but reclamation like, like this is this is tale as old as time this is finding the root of your fetishization like don't feel shameful fetishize your shame like that is this all tracks for me. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, yeah, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I, sh I shouldn't be surprised that you do. So, <laughs> um, okay. So the last thing here before we wrap things up, where do you think this should go in the ranking that we established yesterday? So uh, just to refresh everyone's memory uh, in terms of the Diablo Cody feature scripts, uh, feature film scripts that we ranked on yesterday's episode, we had Tully at number one, Jennifer's body at number two, Juno at number three, young adult at four uh, and Ricky and the flash at five. And then, paradise at six which nobody talks about so uh <laughs> where do you think uh lisa frankenstein should go in that list for me it's under juno and above young adult that's where it fits for me personally. i was thinking that too i i i th i think if i had rewatched young adult more recently i would be able to maybe make a, a stronger case that that film should be above this one but since i haven't done that i think I, I, I guessed that that's where you would put it, BJ. And I think that's probably <laughs> good for, for the purposes of this podcast. I, 
there's a part of me that that is like a nagging thing that I'm going to be like, as soon as I stop recording, I'm going to remember another scene from Young Adult where I'm like, mm, should I have argued for that a little bit harder? But, uh, you know, we're, we're in the volume business. We're we're uh, releasing podcasts every day here. So sometimes we'll make, we'll make mistakes. Who knows? But um, yeah, but yeah, I, I'm mean, comfortable doing that. In case people didn't listen to the list yesterday, like at least for me personally, everything save for paradise that Diablo Cody has done is like an 8.5 at minimum uh, and above for me. Um, they're it's they're all getting A's in in my book, um, yeah. and also not not to disparage the the holy name of the Slash Film Daily podcast, but like. We're just two movie writers talking about movies uh, on a <laughs> podcast. Uh, there's n- this is not the definitive ranking that you know the annals of history will never be able to change. Like I, I think we're f- I think we're fine. How dare you, Beach? <laughs> I, I know. Uh, How could I? <laughs> okay. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode. You can find more about uh, all of the stuff that we talked about on today's show. I'm going to link specifically to uh, BJ's review of Link- Lisa Frankenstein, which you can read in the show notes. Uh, and then, yeah, you can go to slashfilm.com and, and read uh, a few more things. I think uh, Diablo Cody mentioned at one point that she considers this movie to be taking place in the same universe as Jennifer's Bodies. We wrote about that. Um, so, yeah, I encourage people, as always, to go to slashfilm.com, click around, read some stuff there. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter. There is a link for that in the show notes as well. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really does help us out a lot. Tell your friends about the show any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all next week.